today we'll finish up Ephesians chapter 5, focusing on verses 28 through 33, but I want to start back in verse 22 so we get the whole section. Starting in verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." And then verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Oh, Genesis 2 keeps coming up. It's the starting point for a biblical theology of marriage. Jesus quotes that passage in Matthew 19, and Paul quotes it here in Ephesians 5.31. So I want to start there, even though it's not our first verse in the text we're considering today. So let's go back to the beginning and think again about how God instituted the very first marriage for what God did there has permanent implications for marriage throughout all time. And we've noted already that God created Adam first and then created Eve for Adam. But when God created Eve, instead of forming Eve from the ground, as he did with Adam, he chose to create Eve from the body of Adam. He took one of Adam's ribs and made Eve from that. And then he brought her to Adam. Now, obviously, God could have done it the same way that he did with Adam. He could have formed Eve from the ground but he didn't do it that way. He formed her out of Adam. That wasn't an accident. That wasn't uh, just an incidental thing in the text. It was purposeful. So the question is why? Why did God do it that way? He has a reason for everything he does. And I believe it was because he wanted to signify that marriage is about oneness. Just as in the doctrine of the Trinity, we have a great mystery. We have three persons, three divine persons, but one being of God. So in marriage, we have a mystery. Paul calls it that in verse 32. We have two persons, husband and wife, but who are one flesh. There's a profound unity there. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 19, 6, teaching about Marriage and the unlawfulness of divorce and remarriage said of the husband and the wife, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And that is profound. I'm not sure we get it, actually. That we really grasp what he's saying, because we still tend to think in terms of individuality, and we emphasize that a lot. We've got two individuals here, and we're, we find ourselves often emphasizing the individuality of the two persons in marriage instead of the unity. But why did God take woman out of the man to show that she was actually part of him and belonged with him and to show that Adam in loving her would be loving himself? When God brought Eve to Adam for the first time, Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man for this reason. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that's the verse that is quoted in our passage in Ephesians 5 and also by Jesus. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, she's part of me, Adam is saying. He names her accordingly. She shall be called, in Hebrew, Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. Ish. Isha. And in English, we did the same thing. Whoever put together the English language. Uh, however that came about, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Man, woman. Even the very names signify unity and similarity rather than difference. Prior to today's you know, transgender fad, which seeks to obliterate sexual distinctions altogether. Prior to that, the emphasis in culture was on how different men and women are. Women are from Venus, men are from Mars, you know, books like that, selling like hotcakes. And certainly there are differences beyond the way that we look and beyond our anatomy. But what's interesting in Scripture, particularly in the passages about creation and about marriage, is how similar we are. Men and women are not treated as two different species from two different planets, but rather one and interdependent. 1 Corinthians 11, 8-12, Paul says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Going back to the beginning. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. You see the emphasis on interdependence there between man and woman. And then back a few chapters in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 4, when speaking, uh, when speaking of marriage, Paul invokes the theme of oneness, and interdependency to enjoin husbands and wives to not rebuff one another. But because of immoralities, he says, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Why does the husband have authority over the wife's body and why does she have authority over his? Because they are one flesh. 
and they belong to one another. Of course, it's true that when a man marries a woman today, he's not marrying a woman who was formed out of his own rib. That happened with Adam only. And God did that, though, as a symbol for all marriages for all time. And that's why right after Adam speaks of, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right after that, he says, for this reason, whether this is Adam speaking or Moses, I don't know, but it's God. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. For this reason. So that bone of bone, flesh of flesh thing is not applying only to Adam. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Because they were joined to each other, every husband and wife are joined together when they marry and are one. So with all that as the background, then we come back to verse 28 of Ephesians 5, and then hopefully we're in a better position to understand what Paul is saying here when he says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So we have an imperative, husbands ought, husbands ought also to love their own wives, as their own bodies, and we have an indicative as well, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Because the husband is one flesh with the wife, indicative, when he loves her, he automatically is loving himself because she is one with him. The husband should not distinguish over much between himself and herself. She is one with him, and so he cannot do good to her without doing good to himself. They're so closely bound to each other that what is good for her is good for him. If he is gentle to her, for instance, he will himself benefit from that gentleness and the way that she responds to him. If he is thoughtful and considerate toward her, he will benefit from that thoughtfulness and consideration that he shows to his wife. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 5 defines what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love is not, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. So if the husband is patient with his wife, love is patient, he will love himself. If he is kind, love is kind. If he is kind rather than harsh, he will love himself. If he is not sinfully jealous of her, suppose she gets attention for certain accomplishments or talents and he doesn't, he will love himself if he joins in honoring her instead of trying to compete with her for honor. If a husband avoids acting unbecomingly to his wife, avoiding rudeness, crudeness, crassness. If he is much more of a gentleman, he will likely find her to be much more of a lady. And while I'm on that point, why do we men expect our wives to set the bar and the standard of decency? Why do we think that our job is to be crude and their job is to scold us and keep us from sinking too far into the gutter? If we're the leaders of the household, maybe we should try leading. 
And I say that to myself. Love does not seek its own. Love is not selfish and self-centered. As we noted last week, love is outward thinking. That's just the very nature of it. Love takes in the interests and concerns of others around us and their needs. And in marriage, the husband is to think outwardly about his wife's needs, not just his own. If she's at home all day with the children and she longs for adult fellowship, he shouldn't say, well, I don't need that. So since I can get along without it, so can she. He should not think only of his own needs and interests and be unsympathetic to hers. He should think outwardly about his wife and take in her interests and seek to meet her needs as well. Either by spending time in conversation with her, which will mean then saying no to other things, other interests, or look for ways to enable her to have fellowship with other sisters in Christ. But when he does so, he will have a much happier wife and he will be loving himself by loving his wife. Because she is much happier, he will be much happier as well. Now, it's not always the case, but generally speaking, men talk a lot less than women do and reach their satisfaction point in conversation much earlier than women do. So if we apply that principle of love that we see in this passage to an exceedingly common situation in marriage, at least in Christian marriages, the man has been out in the workplace all day and the woman has been at home. I'm thinking primarily of Christian marriages today and I recognize not all of them are like that and in worldly households it's not ever like that but almost never. But he's been around people and talking to various people all day and possibly more than he would like. And he then comes home all talked out with his mind on various other things that need to be done around the house. And his wife, who's been home perhaps with the children all day, whom she loves, but she's longing for some adult fellowship and conversation with her husband. Maybe she wants to know how his day has gone, wants to tell him how her day has gone. The husband has authority, yes, to say, we don't have time, honey, to talk much right now. We have a bunch of things that need to get done. The question is, is it wise to say that? Is it consistent with the Ephesians 5 commands? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Maybe the husband doesn't have a list of things to do. Maybe he just wants to relax. He wants to vegetate on the couch and watch something, maybe a game or read something. But his wife is needing him. And he signed up for marriage. She's not merely his cook, remember, not merely his maid. And she's not a prostitute to meet his sexual needs. She's his wife. And the vows that he made were giving vows. And now it's time to pay out what he vowed. So listen carefully to God's word on vows. Husbands and wives, because both, of course, make vows to each other. Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. 
Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. We talked a little bit about this last week, I think. Um, the decision about do you want to sign up for marriage and all that it involves you in contractually is the decision to be made before you get married. Before you make those vows, not afterward. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 5. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So, wives, submit to your husband's authority and decisions. And be reasonable, not irrational. Sometimes there are things that he needs to do right now. And it isn't a good time to talk. Don't turn your husband into an idol who is expected to meet needs that only God can truly meet. Learn to commune with God so that you don't need your husband so much. If he dies, you will have to learn to lean on God then. So learn to lean on him now. Your husband won't be able to meet your needs if he dies. It will only be the Lord who can Look at every blessing you get from your husband as bonus material. But husbands, remember what you signed up for. Remember that your wife is the weaker sex. She has more needs than you do. And you vowed to serve her. First Peter 3, 7, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. You see again the principle of love your wife and it's self-love. He who loves his wife loves himself. If you are dwelling with your wife in a patient and understanding way, you will be loving yourself because your prayers will not be then hindered. And by the way, my apologies to any listeners from the third world. Um, I realize that the examples and illustrations are rooted in first world luxuries. Relax at the end of the day. Uh, vegetate on a couch. Watch a game. I realize these are foreign things for folks in the third world, so I, I hope you can find application to your different context. In any case, as you can see, being a husband is not really like being a CEO, though some husbands maybe think it is. Yes, he is the head. He gets to call the shots. He gets to establish family priorities. But he's required to love his wife in a way that a CEO is not required to love his employees. Yes, an employer should be kind to his employees. He should be fair to them. He should be respectful. But a CEO is not one with his employees. They are not joined together like a husband and wife. And when we get to Ephesians 6, 9, where we talk about masters, we won't hear anything like we're hearing right here in Ephesians 5. 
concerning husbands. A CEO does not make vows of love to his employees. But a husband and wife do. So pay them out. Pay what you owe. Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. How does a husband love his own body? He nourishes it and cherishes it. He feeds it, clothes it, shelters it from the elements. He gets medical care when needed and so on. And so he should do all of the same things for his wife that he would do for himself. Paul's statement is broad when when he says no one ever hated his own flesh. And there's, of course, exceptions to that, and Paul is aware of those things. There are people who cut themselves, people who starve themselves, people who mutilate their bodies, people who destroy their bodies through alcohol and drugs, people who commit suicide, and so on. But Paul is speaking generally about the the usual and the ordinary. Most people take care of their own bodies to some degree. Most people bathe. Most people brush their teeth. Most people get some rest at night and avoid dangerous and life-threatening situations. Most people are trying to live, not die. And that is a legitimate form of self-love. God doesn't give us permission to mistreat ourselves. We belong to him and our bodies are his property. So we are not permitted to abuse ourselves. And applying this to the husband... If the husband wants rest, then he should want his wife to get rest as well. Maybe he's very tired at the end of the day and he just wants to put his feet up. That's okay. But what about his wife? Maybe she had a long day as well and would like to put her feet up. Maybe instead of expecting her to do the dishes while the husband kicks his feet up, he should do them with her. Or get the children involved on a rotation so they can take their turn. Maybe they both kick their feet up for an hour and then they both go after the dishes. Some men seem to feel that they have earned the right by a long day of work to rest in the evening while the wife continues to work. So he works until five, she works until 10. That's not loving your own wife as your own body. Maybe there's decisions that need to be made that will reduce the amount of work that needs to be done each evening. You know, well, we're just going to go to paper plates or uh, let's just have sandwiches um, routinely. He needs to monitor that and make decisions that will benefit his wife and himself and the family and the wife should submit to those decisions. Verse 29, the last part, and then into verse 30 For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Christ is the model and the standard of good husbandry. He's the perfect husband. He loves the church, and so husbands should love their wives, just as Christ loves the church. Human beings nourish and cherish their own bodies, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. We have been united to him by faith in a, for lack of a better word, all the old writers call it mystical, mystical union. 
a mysterious union. We've been united by faith to Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and seating in heaven. Christ is the head and the church is the body with various members. Therefore, what is good for the head is good for the body. What benefits the head benefits the body. Attacks on the body are attacks on the head as well. The body is not disconnected from the head. It's in vital union with the head. You see this union referred to in a number of places. Back in Ephesians 1, we saw it. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, that's Christ, and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ the head fills the church. See the, the union that must be there for that to be true. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 in the next chapter, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there you have that death, resurrection, ascension, and session. And we with him. In Colossians 2, 18 through 19, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Again, we're just looking at the connection between head and body. Romans 6, 3 through 8, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And again, Romans 12, 4 through 5. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Christ nourishes his body, the church. No man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And so Christ also has a body, the body of Christ, the church, and he loves it, he nourishes it, and he cherishes it. And in nourishing, his, nourishing it, we think of him feeding it. He feeds the church on the pure milk of God's word. He feeds the church on truth and understanding. 
He gives us our daily bread. He makes us to lie down in green pastures, which for sheep is a place of abundant food. Good, abundant, rich food. Christ does not lead his bride, his body, into a desert where there is nothing to eat. He feeds her with abundance, which does make you wonder, doesn't it, about various churches where the pastor feeds the people on a starvation diet of skim milk at best. If the Lord's people are really there, where's the food that he promised to feed them with? Where's the green pastures that he says he will lead them to? If the sheep are not fed there, why are they still there? Why haven't they left? Why hasn't Christ led them away from the desert to green pastures? Christ nourishes his body. Christ cherishes his body. The word for cherish is, uh, in the original is to impart warmth, to brood over as a mother hen would her chicks. That's the, the root word from which we get this word cherish. In Psalm 91, 1 through 4, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. God pictures himself as a mother bird sheltering us under his wings. The Lord Jesus constantly has his eye on his body, the church, his bride. There's these two different metaphors, his body and his bride. We may feel forgotten at times, but that's our unbelief talking. He does not forget us. In Isaiah 49, 14 through 16, it says, But Zion said, and this is the way we sometimes talk, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Christ cannot forget his bride for whom he suffered and died. He cannot forget his beloved for whom he shed his blood. He cherishes his body, the church, his bride. When Satan tries to devour the bride, Christ has not forgotten her. He still nourishes and cherishes her. This is what Revelation 12 says pictures for us the woman which is the church fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1260 days fleeing from the dragon and in 13 through 16 of that chapter when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child 
but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished. There's that word nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. You see Christ caring for and nourishing and cherishing the woman, his bride, the church, even in the onslaughts of the dragon. When Christ's bride wishes to commune with him and speak to him, does he spurn her? No. Does he tell her, I have no time for you? Does he tell her that he has more important things to do? Is he impatient with her neediness and her loneliness? Does he say, why are you so needy all the time? Can't you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Is he frustrated that she doesn't have more strength and self-sufficiency? No. In fact, wherever there's a rebuke, it's that we're too self-sufficient, right? We don't go to him. And we're leaning on our own strength and our own understanding. Does Christ speak rudely and harshly to this bride that he nourishes and cherishes? No. Does he treat her like a maid, a cook, a prostitute? No. He cherishes her. Look at the Gospels. Read them. Look through them and pick through the verses and see if you can see anywhere where Christ did something that didn't concern his bride. Where he went and did his own thing, so to speak. Even when he went off by himself on the mountain to pray, that was communion with the Father, but not at the expense of the bride, but also for her benefit. Do you ever see him doing anything that you can't trace back in some way to the good of his bride? Is there any selfishness there? Any self-centeredness that you see? Is there any time when I said, hey, this is me time? No, he was always, without exception, living for the good and the benefit of the church. And this is the model husband. I won't... Belabor verse 31 because we've already touched on it. This is the quotation from Genesis. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, Paul says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. All this talk about husbands and wives has as its backdrop, Christ and the church Marriage was foreordained by God to be a sign of Christ's love to his bride. All of world history is an unfolding drama of Christ seeking a bride, finding a bride, betrothing himself to that bride, making vows and promises to that bride, nourishing and cherishing that bride, 
and then one day coming back to greet his bride, consummate the marriage, bring her into the home he has prepared for her, and celebrate the great wedding feast. And in the meantime, the bride is anxiously waiting for the bridegroom to return and for his grand appearance. The whole goal of redemption and of redemptive history is for Christ to have himself a bride who is adorned in holiness, holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, perfect, beautiful, ravishing. That's the meaning of life on this terrestrial ball. That's what we're here for. That's what it's all about. Matthew 22, 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Matthew 25, 1, then the kingdom of heaven would be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. <laughs> Revelation 19, 7 through 9, at the grand climax of it all, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and her bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These words, these are true words of God. The world, of course, doesn't get this. They don't know what it's all about. They don't know what life is about they don't know why we're here with respect to marriage they're not even sure it matters or that it's necessary they can't define it anymore they can't even accept that it's between one man and one woman that's in doubt in their minds they can't even agree that there is such a thing as a man and a woman they have no idea what they're doing worldly people who get married don't know really why they're getting married. They don't understand the divine purpose, the big picture. And so marriage is twisted into something it's not. People are trying to make marriage do things it wasn't ever intended to do, to serve self. Now what about you? Do you understand what this is about? Verse 33 here is a conclusion verse where Paul sums up this section on marriage. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. He's essentially saying this is a grand mystery, and even though the grand theme in, and the meta-narrative is Christ and the church, don't forget that there's a real application here to each an individual marriage. In each marital union between a husband and wife, the husband is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this uh, rich section of Scripture. I thank you for... Uh, the reminder of what marriage is for, why it exists, why you instituted it, what it shows us, what it teaches us, showing 
us husbands what we are to be, what we are to be like, how we are to model our own job as husbands after Christ, showing wives how they are to respond to their husbands in submission to him. And we pray for much grace, Lord, the the, uh, evil one is always attacking marriage and seeks to destroy our marriages and destroy our homes. And he is successful um, much of the time. And uh, we who are surviving are surviving by grace and we wish to thrive and to thrive by grace. We want to have marriages where people um, look and notice and they, they see something that comes from you and that points to you and points to Christ in the church. We want them to see that and uh, that we would glorify you in our marriages. We need much, much help, much grace, and much strength. Keep us, Lord, from the evil one. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.